The following podcast will contain foul language and spoilers, and if we're lucky, sex, violence, nudity, and triggers. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Everett Book Club. We are a twice-monthly book review and discussion podcast specializing in old or out-of-print science fiction and fantasy. My name is Ruiz Tremello, and I'm a used car salesman salesman. And my name is Marguerite, and I'm an alpaca haberdasher. Together we travel the world administering Turing tests, and today we're on Turks and Caicos, recording in the hills above Lagonda. We went hiking in the mountains and got lost, so we decided to record an episode. If you listen carefully, you could hear the cries of animals from the surrounding jungle. And hopefully, some search and rescue helicopters, too. Hopefully not. We just found all this Nazi gold, Ruiz. I think we're going to need a lot more than a helicopter. You know, I think it'll all fit in a helicopter, but we won't both fit along with it. So what you're saying is, one of us has to walk out of the jungle alone. Sounds good to me, but first, let's talk about Drunkard's Walk. Sure. Part two. Ah, finally. We don't need to re-describe the cover, because we did that last time, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to anyway. It's weird looking. (laughs) Agreed, and it's not even centered on the middle of the page. Yeah, and I still don't know what that weird icon is in the side of the guy's skull. No, I know. Guy or gal's skull. (laughs) So just to do a quick recap here, we have basically only five characters. We have Kornut, the math professor, who is working on an analysis of the Wolgren anomalies. We have his new wife, Locille. She comes from a Texas. Mm -hmm. We got Master Carl, the head of the math department, who likes taking fuzzy pictures of molecules because he (laughs) thinks he can prove telepathy exists. Mm -hmm. We have President St. Kerr, the super anciently old president who's really ugly looking and we have eggard the undergrad who's soon to be sent to south america or possibly has already been sent we're not quite sure the timeline when we ended last episode lasille and cornut had their first ever night as a married couple no and suddenly cornut had found her beautiful and she was all into him oh yeah right they did they have sex? They We don't know if they really consummated it or not, but it seemed to imply that they might. Oh. But it was 1960, so maybe they never do. I don't know how the 60s worked. <laughs> you know, in the early part of the 60s, where it was basically still the 50s. <laughs> ancient, ancient times ago. In the far, far past. We start off the next morning, their first ever morning as a married couple. Losil wakes up Cornut while she starts getting ready for class. Cornut is feeling lazy, however, so he stays in bed. Because <laughs> he just got laid. Yeah, and he's giddy with happiness while he watches Losil getting ready. <laughs> she tells him to take a wake-up pill just to make sure that he doesn't go back to sleep and then kisses him goodbye. Oh, smart. Well, I don't know if it's that smart. you know what happened last time he had those wake-up pills? No, I don't remember. He kept taking them on the top of the tower. Oh, yeah, right. One after another, <laughs> until he puked onto the exterior oh, yeah. escalator. <laughs> Everyone won. <laughs> so, Corna takes a wake-up pill after she leaves, as per her advice, and he leans back and waits for it to take effect. But uh, a couple minutes later, it doesn't seem to be working, so he takes another. 
Oh, again, he doesn't learn. But then he starts feeling sleepy, a little too sleepy. So he takes another. Oh, mm, I don't think these are working. Quote, he blinked eyes that were much too heavy and tried to turn his very weary head. Yawning, but after three wake-up pills? Or was it six? History was repeating itself. <laughs> of course it was. Do you think Lucille uh, drugged him? He's accidentally been taking the green pills. Not wake-up pills, but sleeping pills. What? <laughs> and now he's too sleepy to fight the pills from taking effect. Why would he have sleeping pills in his house? And right think? next to the wake-up pills. Yeah. Well, I imagine they're different colors, too. This guy is not very smart. So he starts falling asleep and he's too sleepy to fight the pills from taking effect. No. No. And that's when we cut to Master Carl prepping for a televised lecture. He's in the back room putting on makeup when Eggard comes in. Master Carl greets him with a lecture because mm. Eggard left class early the day before. Everyone loves a lecture greeting. But Eggard doesn't care because he's decided that when he returns from South America, he's leaving the math department to enter the medical school. Hmm. Okay. Quote, Master Carl was purely horrified. <laughs> Who'd want to leave math? <laughs> no, anything but that. Eggert says that he does not have the talent for math, and reluctantly, Carl agrees to sign his transfer form. <laughs> Just then, there's another knock, and a man enters. Quote, Excuse me, I'm sorry. Name's Farley. I'm Master Cornuts. Master Carl interrupts him, saying, You're a sex writer. Oh, ooh, say that again? A what? You are a sex writer. A sex writer. Farley goes on to explain, quote, I was a wedding present, and so I went to see Master Cornut this morning with a rough 30-day draft. Uh, pause. A wedding pre- This still doesn't explain anything. A sex writer? Oh, I'll explain exactly what's going on. I'm a wedding present. Does not constitute an explanation. So basically... There's more questions here. <laughs> so basically, he says uh, to Master Carl that he went to see Cornut. Long story short, he discovered Cornut near death from too many sleeping pills, and medics are tending to him now. Uh, so all of your answers are... Are not answered. All answer. of your questions are answered now. <laughs> Farley, the sex writer, and Master Carl uh -huh. head to Cornut's quarters. How is this a future job? You'll find out in a sec. Lucille is already there looking concerned, and Cornut reflects that since Master Wall had given him the gift of Farley, the sex writer's services no, for one I still full year. No, not have an explanation. <laughs> and since Farley was the one to discover him and save his life, technically he owes Master Wall for saving his life. Ooh, that's specious. So basically, Cornut is fine, but he's not a fan of having his stomach pumped. <laughs> Who is? So basically, now that the scene is done, uh, let me go ahead in the plot a little bit and explain the sex writer. Please do. So it's the year 2197, as you know. Glorious feature. And because the internet hasn't been invented... <laughs> And there's only radio and a little bit of TV. It seems that people hire sex writers to do full psychological evaluations to determine what exactly will turn on a person the most. Oh, what? And then and, and, and interview both halves of a couple and then write customized erotic literature for them. Oh my god. That specifically is tailored to their tastes. 
That's and then what? And then they read it to each other. Uh, and I guess it's a regular thing where at least once a month they get some sex literature dropped off to them. But what do they do with it? I mean, I know and they read it. And then I guess it, they read it together, and it turns them it on. And maybe so. Maybe they do. So it's like a play more than like a novel? We don't actually know because we don't get any of the uh, salacious examples of the <gasps> sex writing. Now I want to know more about this. They should have wrote a book about this. <laughs> it's not the last that you're going to see of Farley the sex writer. Really? So. This is exciting. Cornnut has his stomach pumped. He's basically fine. And we cut to the very next day. It's the weekend and Lucille is taking Cornnut to meet her family on A Texas. Uh-huh. Cornut wants to take his analysis of the Wolgren anomalies with him on the trip, but Lucille reports that Master Carl borrowed it because he wanted Cornut mm. to just relax and not feel pressured to work over the weekend. Hmm. So they hop on board a ferry, which is described as having the following properties. The ferry flies, has several rotors with blades that spin at high velocity, and also has a jet engine. So it's a jet? It's not what I normally think of as a ferry, correct? Yeah, it's an airplane. <laughs> as they head out from the coast, Lucille tells Cornut about her brother Roger, who we actually briefly met in the last part. No, I don't remember. He suffered a traumatic brain injury when he was 12 years old and is now mentally challenged. And then we come to a quote, uh, which I had to write down because it was just something. Cornut thinks to himself, quote... It was not that he minded a stupid brother-in-law. It was only that he had never thought of there being any brother-in-law at all. (laughs) It had never occurred to Cornut that marriage involved any more than two people. Well, to be fair, they have like a month-to-month contract. It's not like they (laughs) got any had any time to get to know each other. That's true. Probably doesn't even know her last name. (laughs) We don't know her last name either. No. So they reach the Texas about 20 minutes later, and it's basically described as a massive oil rig, 15 acres in size, with Mm -hmm. 12 vertical levels, the lowest of which is 40 feet above the high water mark. Hmm. Tens of millions of Americans live on different Texases. Whoa. uh, So you're on each one or combined? On different, uh, combined. And each Texas serves a purpose as, quote, they guided the whale-backed submersibles of the world's cargo fleets. Whale-backed submersible? Is that just a description, or were they literally made of whales? Apparently, and this is the only mention of it in the entire novel, apparently they have submersible cargo fleets that are mounted on the backs of whales. Oh my god, the future is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> what, slave labor from mammals? <laughs> you know what that reminds me of? Hmm. The, uh, the, uh, what do you call the, the, the whales from Doctor Who, the ones where the they... Space whales, the space whales. With the cities on the backs of them. Mm-hmm. Texases have hundreds of legs that go deep into the ocean floor. And the legs each have complicated hydraulic systems built into them, which actually generate electricity based on the movement of the waves. Smart. They get to the three-bedroom apartment where Lucille's parents live with her brother, Roger. Quote, Cornut thought it was horrible. It smelled and it was noisy. Oh my god. <laughs> nice, Cornut. The noise is soon revealed to be caused by the hydraulic generators in the Texas's legs, which are described as, quote, the pneumatic hammer hammer and the rattle slam of the valves opening and closing. Oh, that does sound horrible. So these Texases, they're slums or ghettos, or are they like, um, yeah, middle class? Um, apparently they're middle class, but the middle sounds pretty low at this point. Mm. 
Lucille brings gifts from the city. Makeup for her mother, a mm-hmm. sash for her father, <laughs> mm-hmm. and one of the flags of the Aborigines, who are at the university right now, for her brother, mm-hmm. who's very taken with the gift. The group exchange small talk with Lucille doing most of the talking, while Cornut keeps staring at Roger. Oh my god. Cornut, dude. <laughs> Quote, Cornut found him disconcerting. Barring the Aborigines and a handful of clinical cases under study, there was not one human being on the campus with an IQ under 140. Ugh, well, uh, you want to talk disconcerting. I'm sure Cornut is disconcerting to everyone else. <laughs> and Cornut had no experience of the simple-minded. Under 140-something IQ is not yeah. simple-minded. <laughs> so while Cornut is being a jerk, we cut to Master <laughs> Carl taking pictures to try to prove telepathy. That's how I would do it. <laughs> he gets bored after a little while and decides to read Cornut's Wolgren Anomalies Analysis. And we finally learn what the Wolgren Anomalies oh are. Oh my god, it's about time you've been yammering on about this. I did tell you we'd learn about them pretty early, though. Basically, Wolgren's Law is an actual mathematical principle. That, uh, real life? Like, yes. Like uh, outside of the book? For real life, okay. I assume. You don't know. I assume. Nice research. Thank you. Which deals with the distribution of non-uniform elements among random populations. Okay. Wolgren's anomaly, however, was accidentally discovered by an undergrad in the university some years ago. As happens. When attempting to apply Wolgren's law to census data and finding the numbers didn't work out. Master Carl reads the paper and thinks it is magnificent, wondering why Cornut didn't believe that it was finished. He heads to Cornut's room, but him and Lucille aren't back from the Texas yet, so Carl goes on a walk across campus. While strolling along, he stumbles onto the camp of the Japanese aboriginals. Oh, who, they just let them camp wherever they feel like on campus? Who are fenced into an area oh, that okay. they're not allowed to leave. Oh, okay. That yep. sounds that, polite. That's terrible. The leader of the group, Masatura-san, tells Master Carl that he smells bad. What? Carl is busy thinking about math and doesn't really care. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't either. Masatura-san starts getting excited trying to explain that Cornut also smells bad. Well, I imagine that anybody from a different culture would smell weird to another culture. Master Carl thinks about math some more and then says goodnight to Masatura-san, <laughs> who calls after him but is ignored. Dude, you smell bad. Come back. You smell bad. <laughs> Later that evening, Lucille and Cornut arrive back on the university. Immediately after the ferry lands, however, Sergeant Rame of the police department gets on board and walks up straight to Cornut, wanting to ask him some questions. Mm, ominous. Turns out, Master Carl was reading the Wolgren Anomalies analysis, and then he started freaking out, and he went to the president of the university, St. Kerr, and when he got there, he tried to kill the president with an axe. <gasps> the president's bodyguard stopped him, but Master Carl is dead. Uh, so the Wolverine anomaly reading the paper drives you insane? Drove Master Carl insane. Cornut hmm. spends the entire next day with Sergeant Rame, retracing Master Carl's steps and trying to figure out what went wrong. Why didn't they go to Cornet? Because he was the last person to see him? And because he was the author of the Wolgren Anomalies. 
But how would the police put those two things together? That's a very good question that we don't know the answer to. Oh, okay. <laughs> so Cornut visits President St. Kerr, who is completely unfazed by the attempt on his life. <laughs> it happens every day. What do you want? And then Cornut goes to the library. Turns out, right before going to the president's office, Master Carl went to the library stacks to look up census data. Cornut and Lucille go through the census data with the student librarian and discover exactly what enraged Master Carl. Oh, so he wasn't crazy, he was just pissed. A section on age distribution among the census data, which is marked classified information. Mm, The next day, Cornut attends the reading of Carl's will, where he finds out he's the sole beneficiary of all of Carl's possessions. Oh, that's not suspicious at all. Amounting to around $8,000 and also the math department. Wait, let's go back. Okay. He gets $8,000 in the math department? Yes, he bequeaths the math department of the entire university to Cornut in his will. owned by the The university? university? Yes, you would imagine so. (laughs) Also, I wonder how much $8,000 is. I know I ask this for every single book, but I wonder in comparison to, like, um, you know... Comparison to our dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't would be. really elaborate. It never does. These stories are never <laughs> give me the answers I want. Cornut and Sergeant Rame next head to the trial of St. Kerr's bodyguard, the man who killed Master Carl. We hear testimony from several witnesses about what happened. And then the jury deliberates for five minutes and the bodyguard is found not guilty by reason of self-defense. So it's basically exactly how everyone describes it, that Master Carl showed up, enraged, and grabbed an axe and attacked, hmm. and was shot, and I don't know why the president of the university has a bodyguard. Well, clearly if he's not phased by attacks on his person, that probably would hmm. happen a lot. And so we leap ahead a couple of weeks and find Cornut and Lucille happily married. Cornut receives the final boxes of Master Carl's belongings, including his final set of photographs attempting to prove telepathy. Mm-hmm. All the images are fuzzy blobs. Except for one, where fuzzy letters spell out a message on the photograph. A message that reads, You damned old fool. <laughs> so profound. So... Then we cut to chapter two. That was only no, the No, I'm kidding. Now chapter 12. <laughs> chapter 12. We open on the Texas where Lucille's family lives and her brother Roger, who works on an assembly line, cutting apart salmon. Huh, okay. He's feeling a little bit sick and runs to the washroom to vomit and then decides to go home early. He visits the doctor on the way, gets some pills, and then goes to bed. Cut to Cornut leaves his morning lecture and has the afternoon off. So he heads to the city to visit the offices of Farley, the sex writer. Of course. It turns out that the sex writer is apparently quite busy because he has his own secretary. The secretary (laughs) gives him some attitude about not making an appointment, but... Look, sex writing is a high-demand profession. Absolutely. And uh, then he does get admittance, I think, because of the whole suicide thing and the sex writer sort of saving him. Oh, okay. Yeah, Farley's like, all right, come in, let him in, let him, in, let him in. When he arrives inside the office, he immediately tells Farley that he won't need his services anymore. 
I'm going to do my own sex writing. <laughs> yeah. Suck it. <laughs> nice. And then he begins to ask for sexual advice. <laughs> I just don't want to... Oh, wait. He's not paying him. He's <laughs> prepaid for the That's year. That's right. For the full year. Uh, why would he just use him anyway? He's already prepaid. Cornut describes in intricate detail a sexual scenario between a hypothetical man and a hypothetical woman. Mm -hmm. For a friend. And then asks if such an act would be objectionable. <laughs> oh, no. Usually if you have to ask. <laughs> Farley says that it would not be objectionable, but it would be physically impossible. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Quote, Cornut took a deep breath. But suppose, he said after a moment... That I told you I had proposed this to my wife. <laughs> Farley said, seriously, you must be trying to drive her away from you. He might be. So we don't actually know what the no! scenario is. <laughs> it does not actually tell you. But apparently, though, Cornut was proposing some sexually inappropriate scenarios to Lucille. And she's like, you would need two penises for that. <laughs> she was horrified. <laughs> and he doesn't recall actually saying those words to her. Oh, okay. This is why this is significant. Yeah. So it's kind of like the suicides where he's kind of sleepy and acting. Except this time he's sleepy and he's saying things to her to drive her away. Hmm. Interesting. Leaving Farley's office, Cornut witnesses three people killed in a traffic accident. Whoa. He gets on to the ferry home and thinks about Master Carl for a while and can't imagine Carl going insane and decides that maybe, just maybe, President St. Kerr actually did need to be murdered. Time to take up the axe, as one would say. So Cornut heads to St. Kerr's apartment. He walks in to find the air a dozen degrees colder than normal and four people are relaxing and listening to music. St. Kerr is there, as well as his bodyguard, Jolson. Also there is Senator Dane. Have we heard from him? We have not. He's okay. a senator, though. He's new. That's all we know about him. And an ancient-looking woman named May Curbs. No, oh, a bunch of old people. President St. Kerr forces Cornut to sit down. How? <laughs> and then Senator Dane tells Cornut they have a few people every year like him. People who try to read... The classified data in the census forms. Oh, uh -huh. The group begins answering questions before Cornut even asks the questions. Psychic! And suddenly Cornut realizes they're all telepathic. Oh, there we go. They admit to sending the message to Master Carl via his photographs. You damned old fool. Who were they to? Oh, to Master, Master Carl. Master Carl when he was taking those pictures. Mm -hmm. And they admit straight out that they killed Master Carl. For looking too deep into the census data. Oh. Cut two. Lucille wakes up. It's 1 a.m. and Cornut's not there, so she's oddly worried that he might have killed himself. Oddly. Turning on the radio, Lucille learns that there's been an outbreak of virus gamma that has sickened 300 people in the last 12 hours. Oh, this teacher is mixed bag. The phone rings, and a voice tells Lucille that her brother Roger is sick. So she writes a note to Cornut and heads for the ferry to go mm. home to the Texas. Oh, wow. Meanwhile, back at St. Kerr's office, Cornut has been receiving his fifth beating in six hours. Oh, my God. What, from the old people? Yep. Jilson, the bodyguard, strikes him with a club wrapped in a wet cloth. Oh, no. 
And the four old people are obviously communicating telepathically because they're all laughing around the same time to, during some conversation that Cornut can't hear. Or they're just watching them. This is what Cornut has learned over the last six hours and five beatings. <laughs> the four people in President St. Kerr's office, including St. Kerr himself, belong to a worldwide secret society of telepaths. When they detect other humans who have latent telepathic abilities, they send suicidal urges until the people inevitably kill themselves. Why wouldn't they just get them to join the club? And also, they live many, many times longer than the human average. Oh. St. Kerr himself is over 200 years old, and <gasps> that is the Wolgren anomaly in the classified census data. That oh. there is a group of oh, very yeah, old, okay. long-lived telepaths. Right, yeah. And while they're not true immortals, they are all wealthy and in positions of power. And they're keeping Cornet alive for now, because they have a use for him. No, no! Meanwhile, back at the Texas, Roger has passed away. Oh. The tenth victim in one day of the virus gamma. Do you think the virus gamma is man-made? You'll find out, actually. <laughs> Excellent. It's morning on the campus, and a cheerful cornut leaves St. Kerr's apartment with bodyguard Jilson at his side. Oh, that was a sexy beating I got. <laughs> As they walk down the sidewalk, Jilson is constantly screaming mentally at cornut to kill himself. Oh, wow. But cornut knows this is happening now. Yes, but he also is under a little bit of control. He's being steered and shepherded oh, okay. and controlled telepathically. Jilson and Cornut walk up to Sergeant Rame of the police department, who tells them that a thousand people in the city have now died of virus gamma. The plague is spreading. In the city or the Texases? In the city and in the Texases. Okay. combined? And it might actually be smallpox. Oh, wait a minute. From nearby, the Japanese aborigines overhear, and one of them says that his wife died of smallpox. Didn't we get rid of this? <laughs> oh, wait. Oh, wait. People not vaccinating their children. Oh, not again. Have destroyed the future. It's always how the future gets destroyed. <laughs> Sergeant Rame declares he's pretty sure that the aborigines are actually the cause of the outbreak. Oh, Cornut heads home and starts thinking to himself, what's the best way to kill myself? Because uh, Jilson's voice is still screaming in his head. That's horrible. Not sure of the best method to use, Cornut sits down at his desk and writes out a list of options. He's doing a SWOT analysis. Oh. <laughs> then he pours himself a drink and starts writing down some philosophy because the thought of dying has made him morose. Of course it has. Oh, it's taken him forever to do it. Then he pours himself another drink and decides to go for a walk so he could die somewhere other than his stuffy room. Yeah, you gotta make it, uh, memorable. Meanwhile, Lucille has returned to the campus and finds Cornut's SWAT analysis of suicide <laughs> options. <laughs> and she starts running around looking for him. She stumbles onto Sergeant Rame, who has set up a bigger and tougher fence around the Aborigines enclosure because he's worried about mob violence following the yeah. outbreak. Yeah, I guess that's true. After she shows him the list of Cornut's suicide options, he agrees to help her to try to find Cornut, even though mobs are causing chaos at the medical center. Oh, wow. As they start looking for Cornut, 
Lucille runs into someone who tells her Eggard died that very morning of the virus. Oh, man. So it's on the campus, too. Poor Eggert. And also Cornus just around the corner. I feel like it's kind of ironic that Eggert was going to become a doctor. Aww. He was just too late. Just a little bit late. They find Cornut very drunk and singing a song while holding a knife. Oh, no. Lucille is worried, but Raym is not concerned, pointing out the fact that Cornut is holding the knife and not killing himself. <laughs> That's how you can tell he's fine. Uh, he's fine. Yeah, I mean, if you have a knife and you haven't killed yourself or anyone else, then you are no threat. Mm-hmm. Quote, Suicidal? Maybe I'm wrong, Lucille, but it looks to me as if he's just blind drunk. Oh, well, to be fair, I also swing around knives and swords and such when I'm drunk. <laughs> I cannot dispute that fact. <laughs> the next day, 120 million people die of smallpox. What? <laughs> Literally 1% of the world's population. Ooh, it's quick, too. Schools and offices are closed and civilization starts going on lockdown. Oh, wow. Cornut wakes up hungover and wants to kill himself again. Ah, oh, Jesus. But he has yet to kill himself, so he tells Sergeant Raym and Lucille all about the secret society of telepaths. Yeah. And Raym actually fills in a few extra details. Now that he knows about this, he should have been shouting this to everyone before they tried to kill him. Yeah, and instead of singing a song, maybe like tell everyone the news in song. He and the sex writer should have made a play about it. Oh, an erotic play. <laughs> Definitely, because sex gets the information across. That's right, and plays are the best way to deliver news. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so Sergeant Raym fills in a few extra details, basically saying that the Japanese aborigines were indeed the vector for the smallpox outbreak. Oh. It turns out that only the most sick aborigines were the ones chosen for the worldwide tour. Because uh, they wanted to get rid of them. They're like, here, take our gross ones. <laughs> they were given fake vaccinations. They were coached on how to behave in polite society. By whom? By the telepaths. Oh, okay. And so their, this wasn't... And their coaching included instructions such as standing too close to people when conversing. <sighs> also, they don't have any kind of a peace pipe custom and were given a pipe and told to hand it around to the crowds and also smoke it. It's terrible. So the telepaths really engineered this. Okay, so it wasn't just that the um, aborigines were like, we need to get rid of these sickies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was all a plan. Eh. While Sergeant Raym and Cornut are talking, Lucille starts falling asleep, only to wake up a few seconds later with a scream, a knife in her hand, confessing. She heard a voice telling her to stab Cornut. Oh, so they were failing at getting Cornut to kill himself. So they're yeah, like, yeah. we need to branch out. That's right. So can they, they can, I guess they can telepathically communicate with anyone. And control anyone. anyone. Okay. Or I guess anyone with latent telepathic abilities. So she must have something we That's saw. right. This leads to a few more discussions, followed by Cornut's sudden realization. The day before, when he'd been drinking, the more he drank... The less control the telepaths had on him. That makes sense. Because you'd think as a telepath would be only be able to control like a conscious... I want to say conscious mind, but one that is in order, mm -hmm. not muddled. A sober mind. In inebriated. <laughs> okay. Un-inebriated? <laughs> Disinebriated. Ooh, that's the best part. <laughs> in response to this realization, Sergeant Raym, Cornut, and Lucille start to get their drink on. <gasps> yes, that is the solution to everything. It's also the title, Drunkard's Walk. It's true. So you think they're going to go for a walk? 
a bunch of events start happening very fast. We learn that St. Kerr and his immortal friends have left the university, but before they did, they purged the medical computers of everything related to the smallpox virus, which would prevent someone from researching a cure. Uh, Okay, we'll go with that, but okay. (laughs) Fortunately, however, Cornnut uses logic to realize that the immortals probably have their own cure. So all that they have to do... Maybe they're immune. Maybe they were vaccinated. (laughs) Maybe they were. But he figures all they need to do to save the world is attack the immortals and steal the cure from them. (laughs) Now this is just sounding like some kind of video game or action movie. (laughs) Cornnut goes to visit the aboriginals, where he meets with the leader of the tribe, Masa Teresan, who also, it turns out, has telepathic abilities. Oh. And the best part is, remember when he was saying that uh, Master Carl smelled and Cornut also smelled? Like telepath. Uh, yeah, apparently his nose can pick up when the immortals are sending commands at people. Oh, okay. So anyone so who it's... smelled bad to the aboriginals was people whose are minds being were being altered. Okay, that's odd. But because Masaturasan has some telepathic abilities, he and Cornut hold hands and mm-hmm. have a telepath session telepath meditate together yeah exactly because they're looking for where the immortals might be located they're trying to find the secret hideout tracing back the path exactly masatura says that he actually found the secret hideout but he doesn't know where it is Ooh, they're hacking it he mentally shows cornnut what the secret hideout looks like and cornnut says that he can find that from a popper from a what? A popper, a.k.a. a helicopter. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so um, fairies have spinning blades and jet engines, and helicopters are called poppers. I'm assuming because they make some kind of popping noise. And because it's the future. It's made out of popcorn. You can't call it a helicopter anymore because that's not futuristic enough. <laughs> Sergeant Rame calls for some help from the police department. And 12 police poppers arrive. Mm, I dislike that. We continue. <laughs> They get on board one of the poppers, mm-hmm. but because the co-pilot is sleepy, he pulls a gun on Cornut. But the pilot is wide awake, so he knocks the gun from the co-pilot's hand. Sergeant Rame decides the only way they can pull off this mission safely is if everyone gets drunk. Absolutely. It's the safest drunk way to go. Drunk pilots are the best pilots. Oh yeah. But you can't get too drunk. It's gotta be the happy medium. Yeah. Helpfully, there are medical supplies on board every popper. And inside the medical supplies is vodka. Is half a liter of brandy. <laughs> oh, uh, because of the old myth with um Yeah, it's exactly it keeps right. you warm in case you're in case you're too cold. Too cold. <laughs> half a liter, that's a good amount. Do, do they also come with St. Bernard's? Uh sadly no. Oh, or if they do, it doesn't mention it. So let's <laughs> just, just go with it. yes. It doesn't specifically say no, so yes, there are St. Uh, Bernard's. Because it's everything. so obvious they don't need to tell us. <laughs> Sergeant Rame orders everyone in the operation to have at least two shots. I would need more. I would need more. (laughs) They fly over the chaos of the city, heading north, straight into a storm. Ooh, a sexy storm. Cut to Senator Dane, telepathic immortal. He swears as he loses mental contact with Cornut and the convoy of poppers. Ooh, the storm blocked it plus the drunk? It did. That's correct. 
We learn that Senator Dane, President St. Kerr, and 73 other immortals... Holy shit, there's so many of them. ...are chilling at an old resort hotel. That They're is, all in the same place. That is 20 you know, miles from the nearest road. They wouldn't really need to be in the same place. They're telepathic. That's right. Maybe they just like looking at each other's craggy faces. And how old they are. Mm-hmm. The oldest of the immortals was born during the reign of Caligula. What? Yeah, he's like 2,000 years old. And although all of them come from different eras and a wide mixture of different races, all the immortals have one thing in common. They're old. That two things in common. (laughs) They're all cowards. Obsessed with bodyguards and security. Well, I would be too. If I'm that old, I don't want something to kill me. The resort is staffed with Sudanese employees who were flown in a decade before and have had no contact with the outside world since. And they have enough supplies to weather all the chaos of the plague in the wider world. Okay. Senator Dane... What's their end game? Do we get to find out? I think their end game is basically just to chill out for a few years and then establish control. Senator Dane thinks to himself how all their planning is finally coming to fruition and nothing can stop them. And... (sighs) Famous last words. That's when Sergeant Rames strikes him with the butt of his gun. (laughs) And dozens of police storm into the resort, drunk and violent. (laughs) So, the huge. The huge. Senator Dane thinks to himself how quiet the sergeant's mind is and how he couldn't detect all the policemen, even as they were sneaking into the resort. Really? Even as they were sneaking up behind them. (laughs) And Senator... Because they're all facing the same direction, I guess. And Senator Dane starts crying. Oh, he's crying. Some of the immortal grab weapons and police open fire. Many are killed, including President St. Kerr. Good. They search the resort, discover a smallpox vaccine, Mm, round up the 20 surviving immortals... Oh, out of 76? (laughs) Yeah. And head back to the city... The immortals are brought to a hospital where they're fed alcohol through an IV. <laughs> uh-huh. Sergeant Rain reports that their blood alcohol level is being kept at 1.5% oh. to keep them from using their powers. Wow. I don't know if that would work, though. Well, maybe the, they just need a level of concentration. So um, I actually looked that up when I first read this book. I was yeah, like, 1.5 seems fantastic. crazy high. Yeah. And it turns out there's only about a dozen cases in the literature of people whose blood alcohol level has been above 1.5 and actually survived. And most of them were like hardened alcoholics for many years who had so much built up tolerance that when it finally hit that level, the tolerance is the only reason they lived. Oh, wow. Oh, dear. So, pretty drunk then. Yeah. So we got a nice quick raid and everything seems to be wrapping up into a neat little package. And Cornut returns to the university. To continue mapping. On his way, he thinks about his newfound telepathic powers. Because he's started to develop them. They're no longer latent. Oh, yeah. Do you think that the other telepaths were, like, tamping down on his powers? They were. Yeah. And he starts pondering something. Oh, you think society after this, once they learned there was, like, evil cabal of telepaths, would start killing all telepaths? You would think. Especially in light of what Corna realizes, that there are probably a lot of telepaths out there, and that all the telepaths have extra-long lifespans, which means he has an extra-long lifespan. He might end up being kind of quasi-immortal. 
So I wonder how old they do it, because there's that guy like 2,000. That's right. Cornut heads back to the math tower and enters his room to find Losil waiting for him. And we get to the final lines in the book. Mm-hmm. Quote, I knew you'd be back, she whispered. I told you I would, he said. I'll always be back. And he wondered how to tell her what always had suddenly come to mean for them. Well, oh, because she's slightly... That's right, because she telepathic. has telepathic powers, well, it's too. It's a good thing that marriage contract is only month by month. <laughs> oh, well said. <laughs> and that has been Drunkard's Walk by Frederick Pohl from huh. 1960. Interesting. So Frederick Pohl is a very well-known author. Yeah, he's pretty prolific from what I understand. And yes, he has tons of books, and I'm sure we're going to see him again. I'm sure. And I just want to flash back to the end of our last episode. I asked you for your prediction about part two, and you said something to do with telepaths. <laughs> a nice vague prediction. So you were 100% correct. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I could be one of those uh, telephone psychics. In which case, do you have any predictions for part three? There's part three. No, there isn't. No, I didn't think so. Does, do you have any predictions anyway? There's no part three. <laughs> That's my prediction. You are correct about that. This has been the Everett Book Club. You can visit us online at www.everettbookclub.com. Or email us at everettbookclub at hotmail.com. Our Facebook group is Everett Book Club. And our Twitter is at Everett Book Club. Instagram also is Everett Book Club. It sure is. Go to it, where you can we see covers from our collection. And also the books I'm reading. The books I'm actually reading. Right now. If you or your organization are building an artificial intelligence, Marguerite and I are available to administer Turing tests. Please note, there is no guarantee of accuracy, efficacy, or professionalism. And if you know of any secondhand bookstores that deserve some love, email us and we'll give them a shout out. So Marguerite, we're still lost in the jungle, as I'm sure our listeners can tell. Mm-hmm. And we found all this Nazi gold. Oh, far too much to carry, though. And the rescue helicopter is almost here. So, that means one of us leaves with the gold, and the other walks out of the jungle alone. Um, rock, paper, scissors, best of three? How about best of one? All right. One, one two, two, three. three. Scissors, oh, beats paper. Bitch. I always beat you at rock, you paper, scissors. You always fucking beat me at this. <sighs> Fine. Well, you know what? It's a good thing I always bring. My favorite cursed battle axe. Ooh, that'll fend off the polar bears in the jungle. Uh, obviously. All right, I guess I'll meet you back at the hotel, and I'll have the Nazi gold, and you'll have malaria. Well... Or West Nile, or a polar bear carcass. At this point, let's be honest, I'm probably immune. <laughs> at this point, I would tend to agree. <laughs>